Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. So we've not got long to go now until election day. So let's go behind the scenes on what a campaign is really like. I'm joined by three people who've been there through the good times and the bad. I'm joined by Matt Zarb-Cousin, who spent a year as a spin doctor for Jeremy Corbyn. James McGrory, who spent five years spinning for Nick Clegg during the coalition. And Katie Perrier, who was Theresa May's Director of Communications in Number 10 until the election was called, and also worked on two of Boris Johnson's London mayoral campaigns. Welcome to you all. What I want to try and do is get under the skin of a campaign. What's it really like for the politicians and even more so the spin doctors trailing round after the politicians. Uh, let's start with just who you think is having a good campaign or a bad campaign. But don't just say your own team, because that's <laughs> boring. Uh, let's start with you, Matt. Who do you think is having a good campaign? Uh, I think that it was inevitable that when we got, when the general election was called and the public starts to become more engaged with politics and then you had the broadcast rules kicking in for the general election and Labour were getting more airtime, uh, that the policies and their message would start to cut through more. And I think what we've seen is that uh, Labour, the most popular Labour policies are cutting through the abolition of tuition fees, for example, compared to the worst policies for the Conservatives, which is obviously the dementia tax. And I think that's starting to have a bearing on the polls. I think also the, um, the more the public see of Jeremy, it seems that the more they, they like him, his approval ratings have improved in the campaign. I think he's the only leader whose approval ratings have improved. And in the TV debate, um, it, I think the, the public would have been very impressed by Jeremy. I think we have to obviously wait and see how it, how it bears out in the polling, but they, they may, have, may have expected more from Theresa May, uh, although I did, she, I did think she did quite well in the context, but I think that they would have expected a lot more from her. Katie, um, we've seen, in a way, during the campaign, Jeremy Corbyn's on the up and Theresa May moving in the opposite direction. Is that fair? Well, you always get this in terms of it's really hard to be the incumbent and uh, defend a seven-year kind of Tory government. Uh, it's much easier to have a pop when everybody knows you're probably not going to end up inside number 10. And in fact, uh, you don't have to add up your maths and work out that you can't afford any of the pledges you're you're putting forward. And the thing is, is that although um, Jeremy Corbyn had a good running the first of the TV debates is because someone's taught him to control himself and his anger because recently he's kind of calmed that down and he's on Mr. TV. Zen. He really is. Uh, but of course no one's talked about Diane Abbott yet and the more airtime <laughs> she has the more she digs herself a massive hole and buries herself probably, in it. I think we probably put Diane Abbott in the not so good campaign. <laughs> is that fair Matt do you think? Well it's obviously you, you, uh, you want to know your figures when you go on, on the air. Um, <laughs> Jeremy didn't, um, you know, earlier this week as well. But, but that's because I think that, you know, we want to avoid this kind of charade of thinking that this stuff is more important than the substance of the policy and the actual, you know, how much it's going to impact people's lives. And the, the point of Labour's manifesto is that it's everything, every policy in there is fully costed. And if you want to find out about how, it's, how each policy is going to be paid for, there is a reference point, and that ca you can't say the same for the Conservative manifesto. So, what what what's gone wrong then in the Labour machine? Do you think that this has happened? It's happened to Diane Abbott, happened to Angela Rayner, it's happened to Jeremy Corbyn when they've gone on to talk about a specific policy and then haven't been able to explain how the numbers add up. I, I think that there's a um, there is an unusual focus on uh, you know, spe specific little trivialities and little figures when you know that we've we've already said that. These are, these are the policies, and this is how this is how we're going to pay for them. We're very clear on that up front, and really, I think that you know they're maybe being prepped to actually have a debate about the substance of it, and and you know whether this is a a good idea, you know, um, and actually have a debate about the issue itself rather than 
what is this number? I think there is a tendency now in the media to kind of find that gotcha moment and it's very easy to do that with numbers because what they want is obviously the viral clip, the thing that's going to go uh, and you know that, that, that then becomes the story and it's easy for everyone to understand and all that kind of stuff. But really what we want, what, what would be more important in terms of public discourse is actually having debate on the issues and the substance of it. So, James, uh, Matt said that Jeremy Corbyn's having a good election. Katie said Theresa May's having a good election. Are you going to tell us that Tim Farron's having a good election? Tim Farron's having, having a good election, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. I've, not, I've not been out of the game long enough for I can't, 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 can't feel that one. But it's, uh, I think it's, it's all, as with anything, and we've all done it on this panel, expectation management. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, is being seen to have a good campaign because he's managed not to throw up on himself or punch a dog. Um, whereas <laughs> There's it, still time. There's, there's still, still time. time. Well, with a bit of luck, hopefully that might liven it up. Whereas Theresa May went out there with a very presidential campaign saying basically I'm absolutely brilliant you know strong and stable look at me I'm the king of all I or queen of all I all I survey so she set herself a very very high benchmark and then they you know they had a bit of a shocker let's be honest on dementia tax and so it's but it's where you start from you know Corbyn couldn't really have started from any lower and May couldn't really have started from any higher therefore is it any surprise there's been a bit of a narrowing in the polls on Tim Farron, though, he started probably on a low base and has somehow managed to still go down. He's, the Lib Dem poll ratings are down and his personal satisfaction ratings are dying for somebody who's a opposition leader. Well, I think the Lib Dems were, were, are the victim here of something that we've not seen for quite some time, which is that it is really turning into, certainly the media are turning it into now, a proper old school 1950s. This is a two-horse race. Everybody else get out of the way. It's it's Corbyn or May. It's Labour or the Tories. And the Lib Dems are just struggling for cut-through a bit, to be honest with you. And the other reason I think uh, they're struggling for cut-through is the tr- Theresa May said it when she called the election. This is a Brexit election. Until today, you hadn't really actually had much discussion about Brexit in the whole election. Given that's the Lib Dems' core pitch, I think they're getting squeezed out a bit. The interesting thing for the Lib Dems, frankly, is not how we poll nationally. You and I both know that. It's how we do in the 20 or so seats that, w- that we're interested in. And there, I think they're actually doing a bit better than people give them credit for. Although I remember in 2015, you kept telling me to ignore the polls and where you were dug in, you were going to be all right. <laughs> well, and you were left with eight MPs. I think it's a spin doctor's magic. <laughs> ignore I- any spin doctor who says, do look at the polls. I always think, <laughs> it, it, I always think it's the person you should quibble with. That's our cousin. Well, I think it's, you know, it's very unprecedented for um, the polls not to swing to the government in the course of a short campaign, and it's very unusual at least. And I think that there is a, a lot of credit that has to be given to Labour for that, and also for their positioning on Brexit, because I believe that if, if Labour were to have opposed Article 50 um, or tried to obstruct it in any way, then I think Theresa May would have called the election then. Um, and then, because I think what they really want the Conservatives is, is a, an, an election about Brexit, because they know obviously with the overwhelming Leave vote in majority of constituencies, they would win by a landslide. So I think that was the that that's a to Jeremy's credit that obviously whipped three line whip for Article Fifty, and the Lib Dems in that context were trying to position themselves as the party of the forty eight percent. Now what we know now is the forty eight percent actually doesn't exist because the vast majority of even Remainers accept the result of the referendum. So I think the Lib Dems have kind of back themselves into this corner now and uh, that's why they're marginalised it's nothing to do with the media how the media are trying to portray the election and the mandate obviously is for five years Article 50 has been invoked it's no surprise that the, the debate is about policies as well OK, well, we've um, touched a bit on polling, so let's talk about polling and the role that polling plays in a campaign, because we keep being told uh, by politicians always tell us there's only one poll that matters and that's the one on uh, in this case June the 8th but Katie, how big a role does polling play 
in what a ca- in what a campaign is doing? A big role. I mean, uh, every campaign I've worked on, data drives that campaign. And indeed, you know, that doesn't mean whether or not I'm working on a political campaign or something for a FTSE 100. The data has got to be behind it. But of course, the data can be really fickle. And uh, you can start off with this... Uh, being told that you should be saying Theresa May is strong and stable and halfway through the campaign being told that's not really striking it anymore and so you can be in a position where you, you have to change it I remember on Boris's campaign um, someone walked in the room once and, and shouted out oh my god have you seen the front of the Evening Standard we're ahead in the polls for the first time and I think if Linton Crosby had had a gun at that point <laughs> he would have taken him out just clear because no one needs to be told you're doing so well give yourself a massive pat on the back and all go for a curry there is work to be done we have to turn these people out um, and we knew that we were making progress, but no one, you want to be the underdog, really. No one wants to be in that position. And so it was a perfect scenario to be behind 12%, in the, 12 points in the polls and then coming forward to squeak it at the end. And of course, you know, it's a very different campaign to take on for Theresa May when you're that high in the polls. You spent 10 months you know, reaffirming to everybody you can be trusted and you can be the best person to lead the country into Brexit negotiations. And they will move this campaign away from, you know, the social care. Um, screw ups and uh, you know what's been what's been talked about in the last few weeks terrorism back onto Brexit in the last few days because whenever she talks about Brexit and she talks about who do you want the choice between Derek Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May to go into battle for for you on behalf of this country with our European partners she will score high, highly. And what happened do you think because uh, you were with these people up until the election was called what happened behind the scenes on that weekend after the social care policy was announced because we were told that she was somebody who stuck to her guns and strong and stable and uh, wouldn't wobble but something obviously happened for her to perform something that nobody else can remember ever happening a u-turn on a manifesto before the election had happened what's what what would have played into that well she knows that it's not the crisis it's how you handle the crisis and the speed in which you work at and so she would have had feedback from candidates across the country. You know, weekends are busy times uh, for campaigning. So on Saturday morning, they would have had the first kind of reaction to the social care stuff. By lunchtime, they would have been fed back to HQ that all was not well. And mayday, mayday, and uh, we need to regroup <laughs> and think about what we're going to be doing uh, next. And credit to her, uh, much like the National Insurance uh, budget announcements when it wasn't working and it didn't land properly she makes a decision right swiftly what are we going to do about it and we can talk about you know that was a bit of a disaster but it would potentially be much more of a disaster if she hadn't done what she did in the labor machine is that that sort of level of pouring over polling and focus groups and that sort of thing going on under jeremy as well uh, from when Theresa may became prime minister there were uh the BMG were commissioned to do polling, target seats, messaging. Um, obviously, that that would have been ramped up uh, after I left. I left the end of March. So yeah, there is there, there is a there is that focus. Obviously, um, I think one of the problems that the Conservatives have had is if they if if the Conservative brand is toxic in the north of England, which is the seats they want to win, then obviously Theresa May has to front the campaign. But if they if she fronts the campaign, it seems the more that she the more that she's out there, the less people like her, the more she's more likely to trip up. Um, so that's a bit of a, a, a difficult position for them to be in to kind of navigate. But um, I think the messaging's all wrong for them. Like you, if you say you're strong and stable, then it's almost like why are you telling us this? Surely <laughs> it's sh- it's show not tell, isn't it? And and Cameron was very good at this. He was very good at, at delivering messages, but not doing it in an obvious way. And and long-term economic plan was was a positive message. 
done uh, in a very obvious way. Yeah. I mean, you didn't get an interview for six months without someone saying long-term economic plan. It was very obvious. And do, do you think Jeremy's good at delivering a message? Because quite often he goes out to talk about one thing. And we saw at the beginning of the year, he went out to talk about Brexit and ended up talking about a cap on wages well that was a, that was all planned obviously but um <laughs> but, but the but people want to know about those venezuelan farmers <laughs> but but, <laughs> but i think one no look one, obviously the every everything is under the kind of na- narrative framing of the many not few and Jer- one of jeremy's strengths obviously is that he's not a kind of robot he doesn't he's not a sort of politician that you need to kind of tell him what to say um is that because I, if you occasionally did try to he wouldn't always say it anyway let jeremy no. be jeremy no, not at all. I mean, look, he, he he can he can deliver a message, but his strength is to to speak in detail on a, on a range of issues. And I don't think that I think that Theresa May lacks that ability. To be honest, I think that she's the sort of person you need to actually give her the lines to say. And uh, I think we saw that in the way that she wasn't able to style out the U-turn that she did. Uh, Cameron would have been able to style that out. And I think that she's that's where she's kind of deficient. But. I do have to I do disagree on the long-term economic plan because that did fit into a narrative framing. It fitted into Labour overspent. I mean, obviously, I disagree with the narrative itself, but there was at least a narrative there. Labour overspent. We've now got a long-term economic plan. We're going to fix the country. All this kind of stuff. But there doesn't seem to be that for the Conservatives this time around. It's just we've got a strong and stable leader. Oh look, our campaign's gone a, a bit haywire. And uh, Katie, you're she's pulling not a face, which suggests you don't entirely agree. <laughs> No, if you're going to call an election, you're going to say that you need that election because you want the mandate to go into Brexit negotiation with the country behind you, united, to get the best deal possible in the UK, then you show that you're strong and stable and you can be relied upon. You're not going to go flaky when it comes to dealing with the EU counterparts. And yes, we've had a bit of a kind of bit of a wobble but actually people when you go around the country I don't buy it at all that seats in the north feel that that Theresa May is toxic I think that they might have never gone anywhere near the Conservative Party before and now they are floating with the idea of doing so and uh, I think that that's where she will make some surprising gains. James I want to bring you in here what's the sort of role of I mean presumably because the headline polls that we all see tell us almost nothing about how the Lib Dems are doing (laughs) presumably is the party doing a lot of constituency polling or relying on canvassing how do they know how well it's going they'll do constituency polling but I mean you talk about people who need to have a good election god the pollsters need to have a good one this time round don't they surely they've got to call this one or we might as well just not bother um, they'll do constituency polling but I've always believed that your canvassing is your best your best data you know your people know their own patch they know which wards you're strong in they know which wards you're not so strong in if you're doing well in those wards or not so well that is always going to be always going to be the best the main reason why you need that data if you're a smaller party like the Lib Dems is bluntly you have to be quite ruthless with your resources there's no point the Lib Dems fighting 650 campaigns you know that's not that's not the contest that they're in and you'll often the most difficult decisions that you'll take in a campaign is basically where you have to ring up a candidate and say look I'm really really sorry you're off the tier tier one list do you, do you mind going in and helping in the seat ne- in the seat next door you'll often get people you know pushing back quite hard on that but if you're the Lib Dems and you're looking at 20 seats where you're mainly interested you've got to be ruthless you know there's no point having 45 seats if that if that's the game plan okay let's move on um talk about the actual campaign and getting out and about with a politician because there's always this criticism that journalists but also politicians spend the whole time in the westminster bubble so it's during an election campaign they get out and about and they meet people but with that comes some risks and we've seen that a bit during this campaign you know different leaders have been confronted by members of the public willing to share their views um matt what's your uh what do you worry about when jeremy goes out and about and meets people 
very little actually. I mean, he he used to go out do a visit every Thursday where he'd get out of Westminster, and um, he's, he's he's very much a people person. I w- would never worry about him if he was engaging with the public or speaking to people, and people come up to him and ask him things that were quite you know, left field or whatever, and he'd always have something to say about it and talk to them and genuinely interested in what people have to say. So he's very, I think he's very comfortable around people. I think you saw that when. Uh, he was reading to the kids uh, at school. Um, so, yeah, no, I, th- I, think, I think that's one of his strengths, actually. So what do you worry about on a visit like that? Is it, is it somebody cut, turning up in front of the cameras and yelling at him? Or I think every, anyone would worry about that, obviously. Uh, obviously, there's some things you can't control. Um, but he, he, I think he, he is obviously very, he's very good in those kind of situations. Um, he's very good engaging with people. So, yeah, I mean, on, on a, in, a, in a visit context, in that, kind of, in that kind of environment, I don't think there's much I really worry about, to be honest. Katie, what about you? I mean, it's obviously there's more risk when the Prime Minister goes out and about because they're the Prime Minister. Uh, and we ha- but we have seen uh, there was Cathy who got up close and personal with Theresa May and said, you know, tackled over treatment of people with mental health problems and learning difficulties. Is that always a worry that somebody, you know, causes a scene like that? Yeah, I mean, it, it achieves cut through in a way that, you know, many Westminster-based bubble journalists won't necessarily d- achieve. Um, you could be in the studio and you've got you've had lots of prep and lots of time that goes into a half an hour interview with, say, Andrew Neil on the BBC. But you can't be prepping for every time you're going out on the road. You could go out on the road and you've got to come up, do what comes naturally to you. And, and on the whole, I think that um, Theresa May is actually fine in terms of dealing with those on on the streets that could have turned really you know awkward we all remember gordon brown uh being gillian duffy Mm -hmm. gillian duffy and that was the end of his campaign boom gone done and we all knew it everybody was in westminster at the time just thought that's the that's the end of you you can't come back you cannot come back from that um and Theresa may kind of dealt with it moved on uh talked about how um uh you know how she wants to invest in in certain services more had a conversation but then carried on going it is tough i mean you know, you, you split half of your time of going out on the road to meet real people and see what it's like, and the other half being in the war room because you don't want to be the one that's stuck out on the road the whole time. <laughs> and you want to be, you know, where the decisions are made rather than necessarily out bag carrying and making sure everybody's got tea and coffee and it's all going fine. But there are a hundred things that are, you know, in your way on the road that could be, you know, an absolute crisis, the exit sign, people throwing eggs, you know, all kinds of different stuff. You've got to be prepared for the unexpected. Um, when I was working on Boris Johnson's campaign, my business partner, my former business partner, Joe Tanner, she was uh, kind of heavily pregnant at the time. I always said, you know, if this baby comes out blonde, we've got, we got issues. <laughs> don't worry, it's absolutely fine. Not at all blonde. Um, but um, uh, she, would, she would be prepping to be a new mum by carrying a bag around of stuff just in case you needed it, you know. Someone threw something at you, you need a change of tyre, you need you need, you need stain remover, you need this and the other. She'd always have this bag of stuff and I'd say, oh, you're going to be a brilliant mum, you know, you've got this stuff to, to carry around with you. But you have to prep for the unexpected all the time. Uh, James, we saw Tim Farron was shouted out by Malcolm, Malcolm yeah, uh, yeah. quite early on. I thought he dealt with that pretty well, to And be it was fair. interesting because normally what would happen is a politician confronted by a shouty person tries to placate them by saying, oh, yes, no, I totally understand. Mm. And actually, interestingly, Tim Farron didn't do that and he sort of took him on and said he disagreed with him because he'd voted for Brexit and challenged him and said, you know, are you proud for what you've done to your grandchildren's future? So it was a unusual approach a politician but he probably got away with it I thought he did brilliantly in that I mean you know there are, bad, there are good ways to handle it and bad ways to handle it but when someone's having a massive go at you and you end up giving each other a little kiss on the cheek I think your overall conclusion has got to be that <laughs> that has gone pretty well uh, we've all had uh, people 
shout or sometimes worse you know I remember Nick Clegg was spat at once and you know there, there, there is a you know that's the stuff you can't ever legis- legislate for and all campaigns will try and control as much as t- you know it's often said oh tightly controlled well of course you're not mm. just gonna it's not just a free-for-all you know <laughs> well you literally why would I be employed if I was just like we haven't got we're not I don't know what we're doing I don't know what we're saying <laughs> yeah yeah well I mean that is also always a good campaign <laughs> that is always a good campaign but I always used to like to think and uh, I, I, I will happily argue this with anyone that the Lib Dems do run the funnest campaigns you know it's hedgehog sanctuaries it's tempin bowling it's zip wires um, cooking isn't it's it? cooking yep. cooking this morning Willie Rennie yesterday was in a DeLorean now I don't care who you are that is good stuff <laughs> I mean the I'm not sure if an academic study has been done into it, though, as to whether the link between Nick Clegg chatting to a hedgehog and what then happened in the 2015 election. I mean, it's good fun and it's good pictures, but does it necessarily translate into... But I suppose if you know you're going down, you might as well have fun while you're doing it. I mean, that was our attitude about it. I'll level with you. We had nothing nothing to lose. We were originally scheduled to go to a hospital, uh, but it had an outbreak of norovirus. uh, (laughs) And we were already already on the way uh, to wherever, somewhere in the... It was a lot... It was Solihull. So it was uh, Solihull. Solihull. And it was... What what can we possibly do in Solihull? And in a classic Partridge moment, someone shouted out, I know a cracking hedgehog. Sanctuary. <laughs> and to be honest, that was the end of the debate. Now, the the, the, the debate that I had there, and you, I don't think you've lived until you are shouting behind your hand at Nick Clegg, hold the hedgehog, I'm not holding the hedgehog, hold the hedgehog, I'm not holding the hedgehog, why won't you hold the hedgehog? I might drop it. Now, that's and, if you can't enjoy a career like that, you, why and be in did politics? He, did he hold the hedgehog? No, he refused to hold the hedgehog. He was worried about dropping Stumpy, I believe he was called. Because he only had three legs. Is that he, right? He used to travel around in he circles. He went around in circles. He's doing your job for you. It wrote the count, you know, <laughs> for headline writers, it was perfect. <laughs> they don't live very long, and he was going around in circles. Um, uh, I was, okay, so you're on the. Let's talk about the campaign bus. Because they look quite glamorous when they're unveiled. These shiny new vehicles with the picture of the leader or the slogan, whatever, plastered on the side. But being on the bus for days on end can be a bit uh, miserable. Um, Katie. What's it like um, on the bus, trundling around? Because there's short visits, but there's long times in between when you're just sitting on a slightly smelly bus. Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing glamorous about it at all. It all looks like, you you know, we stupidly, uh, for Boris Johnson's campaign, we made a pledge that we'd visit every London borough twice which was much more difficult with traffic in London than we thought. <laughs> um, and so we spend hours in traffic getting up at the crack of dawn to go somewhere just because we try and beat the rush hour, just so that we could say we, we visited all these London boroughs at least twice, although some of them we went back several, several more times. We had our Routemaster bus and we're chugging around London, waving at everyone, saying we're going to get rid of the bendy buses and we're going to have this Routemaster, it's going to be great. Oh, okay, right. And uh, at one point, you know, Boris Johnson was busy filing a copy for one of his many articles and kind of rocking in the corner saying that, you know, and I could tell that he was hungry and grumpy, so I popped out and said, I'll get the sandwiches, no problem. When I got the sandwiches, came back, and um, anyway, he was ill for the rest of the day, and it was all completely my fault, but it's the quality of the sandwich bars in Romford. It's nothing to do with me. You should never go for the prawn on an election trail. It was spicy there. chicken. Was it? Oh, oh was yeah. it? Oh, even, uh, let's not dwell on that too much. Um, <laughs> my fault. Although we saw during the, uh, early on in this campaign, Tim Farron nearly fell foul of the onboard toilet. Sky News was broadcasting live from the uh, Lib Dem bus and in the background Tim Farron comes walking down the bus and then sort of disappeared down the steps uh, towards the chemical toilet. Yeah, I mean um, uh, 
they, no one sees behind the scenes stuff. So when a bus is packed full of people all day long, at some point, someone's got to go and deal with whatever they've left inside the bus when they're, they're using the loo. And um, uh, it's always someone's job, the bus driver and an assistant, to go and sort that out. And rookie cabinet ministers who've never really done, tread, tread the path before and uh, or candidates would say, do you mind if I stand in the back of the bus to make a few calls? And they never ask that twice. <laughs> if you have to exist to be on that bus while someone is doing the drop-off, it ain't fun. <laughs> Wowzers. It's you not glamorous, darling. It's not darling. glamour it's it's not not. at all. And uh, Matt, one of, the, one of the striking things is that when Jeremy goes to places... He does. He can pull a crowd. He can. Mm. And yeah. how much effort do you have to put into that? Well, drumming up uh, people. Surprisingly little, actually. Um, and the the events that you know they're not as tightly controlled, perhaps as you know, I don't know, as it's perceived other political parties are. Um, I think that they're. Yeah, I mean, it, he's, he's done. He's done lots of lots of rallies, lots of different places, and I think that's quite powerful, actually. Um, the the uh, the optics of when he when he went onto the stage at We're All Live just before the Libertines, I thought were fantastic, and it got a very good reception. And I, I know that you know, it's young people, or it's that part of the world that usually votes Labour or whatever. But I, don't, I think it's pretty unprecedented that he can go onto the stage at a music festival and people can chant his name and not you know boo him off stage. I think that's quite unusual for a politician. I mean, you wouldn't expect somebody to chant Theresa May's name. At- Glastonbury, for instance, would you? I'd expect most of the people that voted for Theresa May have never been anywhere near <laughs> And you'd need people to know Tim Farron's name before anybody started chanting that. At, uh, uh, maybe at Blackburn Rovers. Blackburn Rovers, possibly. <laughs> have you ever seen Nick Clegg's name chanted at a concert? Oh, how quickly we forget Clegg Mania, <laughs> my friend. He set the book on this well before Corbyn. You know, I know, I, know, I know it wasn't all plain sailing after that, right? But we could pull a crowd in in our day. Um, and, but Jeremy, li- Matt, Jeremy likes this crowd business isn't he it sort of fires him up the parallels have been drawn with Donald Trump that sort of if he gets another injection of a big crowd he can get through another week's worth of sort of slightly tedious meetings yeah I think uh, he's obviously got a lot of experience with rallies and that's kind of his element really he's he's a campaigner he doesn't like the kind of I don't know the the contemporary conception of politics he just he's very much a person who likes to get out and talk to people and yeah it's absolutely in his element Okay, so I want to find out now the best and worst things that have happened to you during the campaign, to onboard toilets to one side. Uh, Matt, let's start with you. What's been, what's good for you during uh, a sort of campaign? Because in a way, although you're not involved in this general election campaign, Jeremy's been on sort of perpetual leadership campaign ever since he became leader. So what what, what do you like about, or yeah, what's gone wrong when you've been out and about? Um, so there was obviously train gate. Uh, <laughs> the, Do you know what? That had actually fallen out of my mind. So I'm glad you reminded me. This well, is this is, this is Jeremy sitting on the floor of a train. Yeah, and the uh, debate about whether which, or not there were any seats. In the context of the leadership campaign, was quite helpful because it set, you know, it's like this kind of anti-establishment, anti-corporate narrative that came out of it. And he was pictured in a bog. <laughs> well, he was sitting on the floor of a train. What, um, oh, that one. No, there's another one yeah. separate to that, wasn't there? Oh, that was different, <laughs> yeah. There's two train gates. Train gate, oh, train yeah, the Min Campbell playbook. And train gate, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but it was very difficult when, when we had the leadership campaign because um, the leader's office staff weren't allowed to be involved in that. So that was very difficult. So were you not on the train when he sat on the floor? No, no, I wasn't. No, um, and no one was. 
Uh, <laughs> very good. Loads of loads of empty seats. Uh, <laughs> and my understanding, obviously, was that he got on the train, looked for seats with enough seats for everyone, and then by the time he got to the other end of the train, obviously those seats would have been taken that he'd walked past, so... But it was genuinely packed. The train was packed. So it was ram packed. It was ram packed. It was ram packed. Yeah. Uh, and he wanted seats for the many, not the few, all to be able to sit Absolutely, together. Yeah. Uh, uh, James, you just touched on you, Ming Campbell in toilets. You probably explain what that means. It wasn't strictly speaking during a general election campaign. It was a Lib Dem conference, and he was looking at. It was either a caravan or a motorboat. No, it was uh, an eco home. It was an eco home. That's an right. eco home in Brighton. And obviously, when you go to an eco home, you, you have a look around. I mean, not very big, so there's only so much to, to look at. And all the snappers uh, who were there were shouting, "Point at the toilet, Ming!" <laughs> and obviously, he did. And all the headlines the next day were Lib Dem chances down the Swanee. It was uh, it was an absolute gift to headline writers. And what was amazing, I remember speaking to photographers afterwards and said. Uh, what were they thinking? And they said, oh, I don't know. And it was the only room they took us in to take photos. <laughs> and it was in this sort of eco toilet, which had, and there were lots of questions about Ming's age. And it had sort of like disability bars on the walls with a picture of him pointing down the toilet. I mean, his images go. It was a, <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was it a, was a particular cracker. Uh, Katie, um, highs and lows when you've been out and about campaigning. Well, actually, with Theresa May, there aren't many of kind of screw ups because she does you know d- deal with it as it comes and doesn't really kind of give you the opportunity but with Boris we were just two minutes <laughs> ahead <laughs> um, we, we love him for it though I mean you know uh, Boris let Boris be Boris um, uh, the public love that about him and you know I've talked about on, on this podcast before about me kicking him in the shins in the market in Romford uh, you drew, drew blood I drew blood and why was this remind us why this because um, he was standing underneath an erotic underwear stall <laughs> uh, and snappers were running towards us and he didn't listen to me uh, when I asked him to move and so after th- asking him three times politely, politely I swore a lot kicked him and told him to leg it and finally he paid attention and that picture never appeared because I didn't get it so that's what I got paid for that day but um, uh, you know, we've had other uh, scenarios whereby, I mean, my favourite ever, which I've never told anyone about, was um, when we went to Janet Street Porter's house to be interviewed for Marie Claire. Our polling, our focus group feedback said that actually women in London weren't quite sure about Boris, um, wanted to know more about, you know, some things about issues. So our wisdom was that we're going to go and do a women's magazine and we we're going to go and uh, pick up those, scoop up those votes. We went to Janet Street Porter's house and uh, I arrived, walked in, and she promptly said to me, if Madonna doesn't need an effing PR, nor does Boris Johnson, get out. <laughs> and I explained, no, 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 I'm here to do the interview, I'm recording it, my name's Katie, it's all going to be lovely, lovely to meet you, I'll have a cup of tea, two sugars, thanks. <laughs> and I got told, get out, and I got chucked out of Janet Street Porter's <laughs> house. Um, and Boris went on to do the biggest car crash interview of his career, uh, even though I begged him to leave. But he said, no, 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 don't make a scene, Katie, don't make a scene. And it was a car crash from start to finish, which we uh, were fighting uh, hard against two, three weeks later after it was published. It's a nightmare. So, um, it's hard uh, to know whether that's good news or bad news, because he's done a bad interview while you weren't in the room. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely. Better definitely, than you're there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> you would have got another kick in the shins if I'd been there, don't worry. <laughs> So, um, what do we expect? How do we expect the um, campaign to play out? Obviously, making political predictions is a is a tricky business. But for each of your parties, what's a good result? What's a bad result? Katie, we'll start with you. Well, they went into the election really understanding the polling from each constituency across Britain and thinking, right, if we manage to score forty to fifty, this is a real result. Don't forget, they came from a position of twelve. They uh, have got real problems getting uh, some of the plans, such as grammar schools, through the House of Lords. That would have been solved um, having a general election. And so their views were 40 to 50 would have been great. 
anything less than kind of 70 and I think it's going to be viewed as a big mistake um, even though I, I think that's unfair because you know it, it shows clearly if you're going to gain something like 60 seats it was the right thing to do um, but unfortunately this is as uh, you said earlier about expectation management um, and when we let people carry on talking about 140, 150 and let it carry on and not really kind of try and nip it in the bud that's what you, you, you get so I'm hoping that uh, if I, I would predict around the 80 mark I think that's a really safe position to be in I'll um I, it'll be too impolite for me to point out when you were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago you said 100 so you're already you are successfully managing expectations <laughs> I am I'm practising what I preach my friend uh, Matt what's a, what's a sort of good result for Jeremy obviously they're in it to win it um, I think that they're going to I said this before the campaign starts I think they're going to surprise a lot of people uh, I think that the Conservatives taken the electorate for granted with their manifesto haven't costed anything haven't really given anyone a positive reason to vote Conservative um, so I'd I, I don't, I don't know where, where it'll end up, to be honest, but I, I don't think hung Parliament is unrealistic at this stage. There's nine days to go. Look at the trajectory of the polls. And finally, James, what's a, what's a good result for the Lib Dems? Anything north of where we are, to be honest with you. I think once you start getting into talking about doubling it, then you're into a properly fantastic uh, night uh, for the reasons that I described earlier. I think, you know, you are really struggling for airtime with the two with the two big boys I actually think that it's been a masterclass in expectation management from the Labour Party that we are having a conversation about them doing well when they are 10 points back and they've been in opposition for seven years you know and we're, you know, what's a good result less than a majority of 80 for Theresa May I mean come on you know and I think that's roughly where it will be to be honest with you so you've all done very well there so James is managing expectations to say anything upwards is fine uh Matt's predicting possibly a, a hung parliament, but Jeremy's going to stay on anyway. And Katie's saying 40 to 50, 50, 60, 80. 80. I was saying... That is, that is quick expectation. It's like I'm auctioning off a count. What was it when he settled on 80? I was saying 80. that 80 would be brilliant, but they, you know, they went into this election hoping for between 40 and 50. OK, well, if you want to try and... Uh, test your own uh, predictive skills you can join in uh, with a f- last minute entry to the uh, our sweepstake um go on twitter at times redbox use the hashtag redbox sweepstake or email redbox at the times.co.uk uh, and with your guesses for how many seats uh, labor and the tories will both get um that's all we've got time for this week don't forget you can sign up to my morning email briefing at the times.co.uk forward slash redbox. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device so it'll arrive uh, every time we release a new episode. But for now, for Matt's up cousin, James McGorry, Katie Perrier, and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.